It's Halloween season, and I want to talk to you about death and the afterlife, or the Bible says about death and the afterlife. So the question is, what happens to people when they die? The Bible says when God was creating everything, God warns man that if he deviates from his plan, if he disobeys him, if he eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the consequence would be that humanity would surely die. That when they die, they will return to the dust of the ground. This is an understanding that's found all throughout the, the Old Testament. Abraham, when speaking with God, refers to himself as dust. The Psalms tells us that God. God knows, he understands that our frame is nothing but dust. Job, in describing himself, he says, I'm going to go down to the dust and you will look for me and I will be no more. He also refers to resting in the dust, giving us an intimation of the idea that death can be compared to sleep. Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he actually cements this idea. When the disciples ask him about the death of Lazarus, he said that Lazarus is sleeping. They're a little confused because they're like, well, if he's sleeping, he's okay. But then Jesus says, no, he is dead. When someone dies, it's like they're resting. So what about hell? There's some people who believe that when you die, if you're a bad person, then you're awaiting the fires, uh, the torment, that there is going to be a hell, as it were. There is going to be a place of fire. And the Bible refers to this as the second death. The lake of fire, the fire and the brimstone actually consumes all of those who will partake of it. They'll be gone. They're, they won't be burning forever and ever. That's why the Bible refers to it as a second death. But that's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. And at that point, those who have continued doing what is wrong will receive the consequences of the devil and their angels. The good news is for those who have died in the Lord or those who are still alive when Jesus comes back, the Bible tells us in Revelation 21 that they will receive their reward, which is eternal life, an experience where there is no more sorrow or suffering or death or pain because all of that has been done done away with and destroyed. In fact, Paul tells the believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that these are words to comfort each other with because when Jesus comes back, whether you're alive or you're sleeping in the dust, that you will be brought back to life with a new body. This is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gives in John 14, 1 through 3 to his disciples. He says, I will go, I'll prepare a place for you, and I will come back for you. a chair. We're going to have a quick chat here about life and death. What I have been thinking about is how we got here and more importantly how did they get us to be so fearful about so many things and really they use that fear that we have likely about death to get people to turn on each other and I've called out the others. They didn't come down here with a troop of people. They have a lot of people that they have recruited along the way into what I would describe as more of their psychopathic behavior patterns with the you know intense greed, the money, the willingness to trample over everybody else to get more money. And what I find interesting is that likely our fear of death is has driven a lot of our decisions. For example, ever see somebody who is dying and they keep going in after one surgery after another and there's really not much hope, but they keep putting hope into, well, this one last surgery will do it? Well, to me, that looks like a fear of death, right? And that fear of death drives us into their arms because 
probably the plan would be to just let it go, right? Not go in for another 10 surgeries. But these are all very individual decisions. And I really feel like in what's to come ahead, how we respond to things will directly relate to what is our fear of death and what do we think this is all about. Across time and cultures, people have been conditioned to view, view death as an end point to the experience of life. The reason I'm sharing my work is so that everybody can have access to what I've been coming up with as far as in researching evil and psychopaths, but more importantly, to think for yourselves. We got here because not enough thinky thinking on our own and too much agreeing with people who didn't have our best interests at heart. So I started looking into what do, what do these religions think about death, and we'll play you a couple of very short clips. Um, come to find out, not much, right? Well, why would that be? Well, probably because if we got more information about death, we might make different decisions. So it appears to me they're not talking about death for a reason, because a fear of death is likely, in my opinion, the best tool they have used to completely control us. And with psychopaths, it's all about the control. So I looked up what the Jewish people were thinking about death, and this is what one of them said. They said, the covenant as we find it is in the Hebrew Bible, is about life, not about death. It promises to those who keep it a long and prosperous life in which one keeps the commandments so that your days may be long rather than an afterlife. In fact, the Hebrew Bible mentions neither heaven nor hell. It speaks of Shiloh, S-H-E apostrophe O-L, a dark underworld to which everyone goes after death, regardless of how they acted during their lifetime. There is also, only one chapter in the entire Hebrew Bible that refers explicitly to the collective resurrection of the dead in the future, and that would be under Daniel the 12th. I found that under there. So, what I am suggesting, because I believe that our views about death will correspond with our reactions in the days and times ahead. We have a lot of fear built up. Look around the media. It's all about creating more fear in our minds. So that fear encouraged us, encourages us to think that this is all there is. And if we think this is all there is, well, probably a lot more fear. And my point here is not to tell you where you stand in all this, but to encourage you to enter some silence into your life and be very clear about what are your views about death. Do you think this is all they are? You know, it took them recruiting a lot of us. There's not that many of them, really, if you look at it, okay? But it took them recruiting a lot of us to go on to their dark side. So they had to get a lot of people to follow their, not only their thinking, but their behaviors. And those behaviors come around death, money, and all of that. And so I would like to suggest that you consider thinking about what is your position? Do you think this is all there is? Do you think there's more than this life here? Do you think that it's worth it to not reach out to others? 
I would suggest a lot of conflict has been brewed during this entire PSYOPs deal going on right now. I would suggest you consider reaching out to those that you still want to have in your life because if you let other people be driven away from you because of fears that they implanted onto us over all these vaccines and all of that stuff, you might consider opening up that relationship again while there's still time. However, if that relationship was toxic to begin with, keep moving along. But be very clear about what do you think this is all about? Most people seem to think this is about fun and games, dancing, money, the old saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. I'm not sure that that's not a philosophy that I aspire to, but this isn't about what my thoughts are. This is about encouraging you to think about where do you stand in your fears about money, life, and death. That's what I would encourage you to think about for today or as we move along here through all of this. Take some of the fear out of your thinking. We get information all of us do, okay? We're all being guided, but it depends on what side of the road we want to be guided by. Do you want to be guided by fear or do you want to open up your own brain? You will have all the answers you need in the days to come. However, if you clog your brain up with fear of death and whatever your decisions are, you will not have access to that same information. And believe me, we're all going to need access to whatever information we can get in the days ahead. We're entering into some very unchartered territories here. So be safe out there. Goodbye for now. There's a place I long to be Where the air is wild and free It's a little haven just for me I can let my hair down and be me Just a smile for a start And it only takes a spark To begin the fire in your heart Wouldn't you agree? Hello listener, this is Hachi. I hope you are enjoying the show. We would like you to consider supporting us so as to keep giving you interesting contents. Take a time out to check out the support page on the website and please consider making a kind donation. We would appreciate any little support. Thank you. Nearly all religions out there have a concept of heaven, that while our life in this world is temporary, our souls will go on to live an afterlife for an eternity. And if you ask most Jewish people, I assume most of them would tell you that Judaism is included in this. However, to anyone who pays close enough attention, how many times do you think the Hebrew Bible, that is, the five books of Moses, discusses the afterlife, heaven? You'll be shocked. The answer is a whopping great Zero. Yes, that's right, the most famous of all religious books, the founding document of ethical monotheism, does not mention the afterlife once. I'll give you a moment while you recompose yourself. Pretty remarkable, eh? But the question becomes more interesting when you look at the endless Jewish commentaries from the rabbis of the Talmud to the modern era, whom all seem to believe in the next world, what they call Olam Haba. So where do they get their source for this if it's not mentioned in the Torah? The ultimate guide to what Jews are meant to believe in, right? Many answers have been offered to this question by Jewish scholars. One opinion given by the medieval scholar the Ramban is that the Torah discusses spirituality actually all over the place. It talks about God, divine miracles, that we have souls. 
And he says that it's self-evident from the Torah that there is clearly a realm that exists outside the physical one. Another opinion is that the focus on heaven would belittle the importance of this world, making the most of the blessings of this world and achieving our potential here and now. And we know all too well what happens when a religion focuses too much on the paradise of the world to come. It ends up coming at the expense of valuing life here on earth. But I want to share with you an answer to this question given by Maimonides, the Rumbum, another medieval Jewish scholar, which I find particularly moving. He says that the Torah is a book of obligations. And if the Torah started discussing the reward of the afterlife, then it would end up obliging us to serve God with the intention of receiving reward in the afterlife. And that misses the whole point. Life according to Torah is about human beings building a loving relationship with God. The Torah is like our marriage document, or in Hebrew, our ketubah, with God. In a ketubah, a marriage document, it lists the obligations that the partners have to one another. Imagine if the document said in it, be kind to him, so that he will make you breakfast in the mornings. How unromantic. Each marriage partner can know that of course their lives are going to be more pleasant if they give to one another, but to codify it into the marriage document that they should give to each other in order to get something in return, that misses the whole point. That's not love. Yes, a true loving relationship can start from people giving out of their own self-interest, but the ideal is for it to get to a place where each partner gives to the other simply because they love them. And likewise in our relationship with God. Ideally, we're not meant to be thinking about what's in it for us, what reward we can get, because that's not love. The Torah wants us to get to a place of love with God, not selfishness, where we're focused on the reward of the next world. I'm gonna do that commandment so that I get rewarded by God. I'm gonna add some brownie points for what I can get in heaven. So we certainly can know there's reward. Indeed, the oral Torah passed down through the generations speaks all over the place about the next world. But to write it into the written Torah, to codify it into the marriage document, that misses the essence of true love. Ironically, the greatest pleasure in relationships that we can experience in life isn't when we focus on what we can get in return, but rather when that's the furthest thing from our mind. No matter how hard I try, I cannot recall what it was like being dead. I know that I was, but I have no idea what it was like. I was actually dead for a pretty long time too. Based on what I've been told, I was dead for between 13.7 and 13.8 billion years. Regardless of whether we want to admit it, we all fear death. The awareness of our impending mortality is one of, if not the most influencing force on our experience of life. The things we do, the thoughts we have, the feelings we experience. Everything is driven by both our unconscious nature to stay clear of death and our conscious awareness of the fact that at some point we will have to face it. Our bodies and minds are mere rentals 
talents gifted to us by the universe for a vacation of conscious physical existence, and at some point they must be returned. The place in which they return to, however, is the same place in which we received them from. Whatever that experience of no experience was before I was born, the 13.73 billion years of time, energy and matter that I can't recall or describe, the thing that I manifested out of and the thing that I would dissolve back into, I have already experienced it. You have already experienced it. We have all already experienced it. Even if you believe that your spirit, soul, energy, or whatever else you might call it is infinite, then its infiniteness must go both forward and back. If you believe in an afterlife, then in principle there must be a before life, because if you end up somewhere after physical conscious form, then you must have come from somewhere before physical conscious form. And if you argue that you must be born physically to access an afterlife, you are declaring that you must be a physical entity to access a non-physical thing, which completely folds in on itself. Arguably, no matter how hard we might try to paint a picture of something different after this life, there appears to be no way around the idea that in terms of personal experience, whatever came before our life is what will essentially come after. This means that you have been dead before. You know what it is like. To your conscious subjective self, for lack of better terms, it is like absolutely nothing. This nothing is not the sort of nothing that we typically consider nothing to be. It is a nothing that we cannot describe, understand or recall. A subsistence far beyond our consciousness and sense of self. Something that doesn't require either and thus to our consciousness and sense of self it is nothing. This nothing, however, is not scary. Before you were born you were perfectly fine with this nothing, perhaps more fine than you can even fathom. Being dead is not scary. The conscious thought of dying without being at terms with it is scary. Naturally, coming to terms with our mortality is extremely difficult. We rarely ever discuss or address it at a level of self-honesty and vulnerability. It is rare that death, in any real sense, comes up in conversation, and it is rare that we ever deeply meditate on the fact that we will all die sometime in the relatively near future. However, it is essential that we do confront the thought of death regularly and honestly. By becoming deeply aware of our mortality, we intensify our experience of every aspect of life, writes author Robert Greene. No matter what we do to veil or distract ourselves away from the awareness of death, the awareness will continue to buzz inside of us. When we do not address and embrace the buzzing, it only becomes louder and more intrusive. It causes us to feel intensifying levels of anxiety, aversion and disorientation. Instead, we must learn how to live with this buzzing and transmute it into the sound of life itself. We must accept death as an essential part of life. 
Doing things the second time around is almost always less intimidating than the first. So if we consider the idea that we have already experienced what it means to be dead and come to terms with the fact that we will experience it again and be totally and utterly okay, then death becomes easier to face, easier to reduce our fear and apprehension towards. To reduce our fear of death is to crack open the door to life itself. We become more inspired to do things that are interesting, exciting and fulfilling, rather than being stuck in a cycle of wasting time, feeling anxious and latching onto material distractions. At some point, we will lose our ability to experience things as we know them. Like it or not, that is the condition of our human experience. If we wish to make the most of our human experience, instead of living in spite of its conditions, we must accept them. Like a vacation to our favourite destination, we should not let our awareness of the trip's end date ruin our vacation. For if a vacation went on forever, it would no longer be a vacation at all. Against all odds, we were given the opportunity to go on this vacation, to experience nature perceiving itself. Ironically, our fear of losing our ability to experience this is what can ruin our ability to ever actually enjoy it, and we mustn't let this happen and squander such a gift. More than death itself, we should fear never overcoming the idea of death while we are alive. We should fear not appreciating life and death for what they are, while we can. Oh darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence in restless dreams i walked alone narrow streets of cobblestone beneath the halo of a street lamp i turned my collar to the cold and damp when my eyes were stabbed of a neon light that split the night and touched the sound of silence and in the naked light I saw ten thousand people maybe more people talking without speaking people hearing without listening Writing songs that voices never share No one dare disturb the sound of silence Fools said I, you do not know Silence like a cancer grows Hear my words that I might Take my arms that I might reach 
My name is Achi. I'm from Nigeria. I am the producer of the show. We would like to take this time out to thank you for your continued listenership and support towards this show. However, this past couple of months, it's been increasingly difficult to produce this show. We would like to solicit for your support so as to keep this show running. Please consider any kind donation you can make, big or small. We would appreciate anything that you offer. The donation link can be found on the website. Thank you. Oh, 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 oh,